Reese and I have been in a pretty good groove processing these older episodes from the archive. You know, the ones that were put on hold while I got my own health back in order. And we were about three quarters of the way in the publishing process. And one of these episodes, you know, the part where all the pieces start coming together and start to actually make a podcast. But we didn't have a headshot for this guest. So I reached out to him. He's been a friend of mine and supporter long before I interviewed him for the show. My text message said, hey, I'm back from the dead. Can you send me a headshot? I may have felt like I was back from the dead, but our guest was not back from the dead. This man, it turns out, has committed suicide three months ago and was very much still dead, leaving a wife and two children behind. And it's pretty shocking. I'm actually still shocked. We've been working all week sifting, sorting, and editing this dead man's voice, mostly about struggling with mental health and suicide. There's a lot to process there. Like, how do I feel? What do we do now? So how do I feel? I feel a lot of things. I miss this man. He reached out a lot while I was struggling. I feel sad he was in such a hard place. It's a struggle I know pretty well. And I'm also angry. I'm angry for his wife and kids and family and friends and loved ones. He's the second person I've heard about in the last two weeks who took their own life and left their children behind. I've learned in the early stages of loss not to analyze my feelings too much. I just try to feel my feelings without extra judgment. Let them in. Let them pass. Try to make space for them because they are part of the process. Doing this work means I've lost a lot of people I get to know to untimely deaths. I've heard from a lot of struggling people over the years of doing this show. Many of them have become people I would call a friend. One of the great joys of this show is I've even heard from a handful of people who went as far as to write out their suicide note and then heard something on this show that helped them decide to go get help. Few of them even shared their actual letter with me, knowing that it would mean something to me. And it does. Those notes mean a lot more to me than any benchmark or award I've ever gotten for this show being popular. I tend to explain this kind of work, talking publicly and honestly about my own struggles, is like trying to pull people out of the fire, other people who are struggling like I do sometimes. First, you got to run towards the fire. Sometimes you get too close and the fire burns you. When you lose someone in the fire, you're close enough to see it. But it also means that you might get a chance to help someone out of that fire. It's hard to explain how rewarding that feels. A huge thank you to the people who have sent me follow-ups to let me know they're doing okay. I'm so honored to have played a small role. If you, who are listening to this right now, are really struggling with your mental health, please reach out your hand. Keep your hand out. Wave your hands if you have to until you find someone willing to help you find some help. I've gone to the hospital. I've gone to the psych hospital. I've been on many kinds of medication. I've seen many therapists. And I've personally called the Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which now even has a number you can text. Both those numbers are in the description of this episode or the show notes. So, while we figure out what to do with this episode we planned on airing, which probably means checking in with this guy's family first, I knew exactly what conversation would stand in its place. I read a story a few years ago about the guardian of the Golden Gate, a California highway patrolman who had a gift of talking people off the ledge of the Golden Gate Bridge. This one guy has personally saved the lives of over 200 people, at the very least gave them a second chance. If you didn't know, I've been at the Golden Gate. 
The cops didn't come because I didn't actually make it over the ledge, but I drove to the Golden Gate and debated jumping off. I tried and failed at finding him, but Misty, who was booking guests at the time, was able to finally get in touch with him, and I was pretty awestruck to have him on the show. There's a really easy way to portray Kevin Briggs, this highway patrolman, as someone extraordinary. I'm even tempted to right now. But after meeting him, I don't think he'd want to be built up as something unobtainable or special or separate from the rest of us mere mortals. Kevin is one of the most genuine, kind, patient, down-to-earth humans I've ever met. And I'm honored I got to speak with him. Here is my conversation with that officer, Kevin Briggs. Kevin, hey. Thanks for coming on the program. Hey, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I don't imagine that you've listened to this podcast before, but I like to start the same way every single time. And that's just by asking you a question. It can be as big or as small of an answer as you'd like. But Kevin, who are you? Just a guy who was trying to make a living and got involved with the California Highway Patrol from Marin County. Never knew the number of suicides off the Golden Gate Bridge, even though I'm from Marin. Started working on the bridge and actually wound up helping a lot of people who, who were suicidal is basically what happened. I'm a father of two boys, retired from the Highway Patrol now, still active in trying to come out and help folks. And actually, I work at, at the local schools in Novato. I'm trying to give back that way. You know, really happy to be here today. I found you from a old newspaper write-up or magazine write-up, but I think it was like three or four years old at this point. It was about how there's this human who has helped talk down over 200 people from jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. I had never thought about it, just like you had never thought about oh, I'm going to become a highway patrolman and this is going to be part of my job. I had never thought about that there are people that interact with that many people who are suffering from mental illness. And I suffer from mental illness. I was at a place three weeks to four weeks ago where I had to go to the psych ward. I had to basically show up at Kaiser and say, something's wrong. I was in LA, so I wasn't even going to my Kaiser. I said, something's wrong. I need to talk to somebody because I've been, I've lived with this my whole life. So I know what a spiral feels like. I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the show, but I've written about it. I went to the Golden Gate Bridge one time, a total moment of despair. It was a low moment in my life. So I've been affected by mental illness and by suicidal thoughts. A neighbor who lives across the street from where my mom lives, who's my age, actually jumped and died. It's amazing to meet you. It's amazing to meet you, I guess is what well, I'm trying to say. Well, thank you. Uh, I think we are on the, the same page on a lot of different things and wanting to get out and reach people and help them. I'm glad to see you're doing better Yeah. for the moment. And I say that because I suffer from depression and I suffer quite a bit, even though I'm on a, a couple of meds, it still kicks my butt. And there's days where I don't want to leave the house. Maybe it's anxiety or whatever else. I try to explain that to people who have not been affected by mental illness. This is what it's like. I heard once somebody say your body feels like lead, and that's what it was like for me. It still is sometimes, but we get out. Sometimes we have to force ourselves to get out. Never been suicidal, so that is a whole other category that people go through, something else that they go through to get that low to think that there's not a tomorrow, that there is no future. So it's to me, it's fascinating. It's, it's horrible. 
and there's a lot of sorrow involved. But I think if we can get to folks, you've been there and you've seen the other side of this. I think we have a lot that we can talk about today. I think so. It's amazing how it sneaks up on you. I've met a lot of people. A lot of people have reached out because I've talked about feeling suicidal and I've talked a lot about my mental illness on this show. It's just part of why I have a curiosity about how to human because it doesn't come naturally to me. A lot of people reach out to me. I've never, you know, I was listening to one of your talks. I'd never thought about, well, maybe you should invest time in, in actually hearing what professionals have to say in terms of what, what's the most helpful. Because I just go off my gut reaction and what I would want to hear, which is basically not trying to change their opinion, just trying to say, well, I know how that feels. I hear you. I see you. And I don't think that you'll feel this way forever. I think you'll love again. I think you'll smile again at some point. I think this is temporary. It just doesn't feel like it. You're right with that. I believe so. And I get to talk to a lot of mental health professionals, those in the field. I've been to some big uh, psychiatric hospitals back east speaking, and it's amazing. I'll have two, three hundred psychologists and psychiatrists in the audience writing notes on the things that I talk about because they haven't experienced someone at that level over the rail, so to speak. But it's neat because there's no ego with those folks. And then we get to chat back and forth afterwards. It's really, really cool to see these folks who have studied many, many years to get to their level to want to talk to someone who is just at a prime level, I call it. Talking to someone over the rail, the basic, the basic we can get down, just one human to another to try to learn from each other. So that's really cool that folks would come out, even though they have these big time college degrees, been studying for years, they still want to learn. They're taking notes and they're asking questions. And then I get to learn from them and then bring it back when I go to negotiation seminars and things like that to show law enforcement, this is the other side of this. So if we can blend that all together, I think that's how we can help a lot of people. I try to get away from the word save. I'm not running into a burning building, but I'm talking to folks. And I think we allow them to help themselves and see, you know what? There is a little ray of hope there. What tomorrow may be better. I have the chance to have it or to make it better. Yeah, I, I love that nuance between say with the word save because I feel that way with this program. There's nothing I can do to save anybody. If somebody has a deep, profound change, I just reminded them of something that they already had in them. You can help, but the saving is up to them. I have this on my wall. It says... The good news, you're a hero. The bad news, you have to save yourself. I saw that. It's great. <laughs> <You know? laughs> for anybody who's pulling themselves out of a pit or is coming out of a pit, I can't take credit for that. You get full credit for saving yourself. I like to hear about people's individual stories, not just your expertise. I would love if you could tell us a bit about how you ended up getting to the highway patrol and when you realized what you were going to be doing, when you came across maybe your first potential jumper. A little bit lengthy, but actually I was in the Army, and I'll tell you the brief history of me. The United States Army. We edit this. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) And I was in the infantry, and I was in Germany in 1983, and I was 20 years old, young guy. I was diagnosed with cancer. At age 20, testicular cancer. People didn't talk about cancer back then so much, and they certainly did not talk about testicular cancer, and I was very shameful of it, very ashamed by it. I really didn't know what to do. Here I am with cancer now. So I had my first operation in Germany. They flew me back to the States, back to San Francisco, where I had two more operations, and that cancer had spread up into my abdomen, 
So I had to undergo a, a big lymphadectomy, they call it. And they took out lymph nodes in my abdomen, took out over 40, over 30 of them were cancerous. So it was obvious that cancer had spread. So then I had to uh, undergo chemotherapy, which was brutal. At what age? I turned 21 the day I landed back here in San Francisco. Oh, my God. So when most people on the West Coast, they're going to Vegas, having their drinks, and having a fun time. I'm in Letterman Army Medical Center at 21. So I went through several months of chemotherapy, and it worked, obviously. But it worked very, very well. My tumor markers would go down significantly every time I would complete a course of chemotherapy. So I got all through that, lost a lot of weight, went down to about 130 pounds or so. Lost all my hair is typical things that we know about with chemotherapy now. And then uh, when that was done, had to get a job and wanted to work and get back in society. And so I started weightlifting and eating right, working for my father in San Francisco. He had a printing business for many, many years. I found out printing was not for me. It, it's great. Some people, if they love it, it just you don't, you don't go from the infantry to being a printer. So I want to do something in law enforcement. I was hired by corrections. I started working down at Soledad State Prison, down Monterey area. Then I wanted to get back up here to my hometown of Marin. The state prison here, of course, is San Quentin. So I applied and was accepted and worked for two years at San Quentin. And one of the close friends I was working with applied for the highway patrol. And he said, come on, do this with me. I was like, I don't know. Those guys look pretty squared away. I don't know if I could do it. But I applied. And the ironic part is uh, I went through the academy. I made it. And he didn't. <laughs> and I studied. I really studied because I wanted this. I didn't know what I was going to be competing with as far as other people going through this course. So I gave all my weekends up. And our it's Living Academy for six months. But I didn't go home on the weekends for the most part. I studied, studied, studied. I think we graduated. Started with about 120 people. Graduated around 80. And I graduated fourth. So I, I really studied hard to do this. And then started in the East Bay over in Hayward, just south of Oakland. Learned a lot there. There's a lot of nice people there, but a lot of gangs and there's some violence too, you know, as there is in Oakland. But I always say there's a lot of nice folks too. So I learned a lot there before I was able to get back to Marin. I spent about four years in the East Bay. And when I came back to Marin here to the office, I started working and nobody really wanted to work on the bridge, the beat down there on the Golden Gate Bridge. So I said, hey, I'll work down there. Happy to do it. I really didn't know why. I figured because there was just one officer working down there, and it's a pretty big area. It's just not the bridge. It's the area that's going down into the San Francisco, up and over the Waldo Tunnel, down over to Marin City, and then all the unincorporated areas plus the parking lots. It's Back at that time, we just did eight-and-a-half-hour days, and there was one officer for that whole area. So it was a lot of area to cover. But I think the real reason was is the number of folks who came to attempt suicide there. People didn't want to deal with that. And we weren't trained in that. I had no training. So I found out the hard way and, and very quickly what actually goes on down there. The first one, I had a, a young female, I believe on the verge of being homeless, uh, a lot of uh, substance abuse. I thought, what the hell? What can I say to her? What can I possibly say to her? And part of me was law enforcement. All my training was, what are you doing over the rail? That's illegal. You're now you're a trespasser. But the other side of me, the compassion side was, oh, my God, if she jumps, what am I in trouble? This poor lady, what can I say to her? I don't want to say something wrong. And I think I said about everything wrong that she could. Things are going to get better. People love you. But I think she saw some empathy in me. And really, I, I did give her time to think about things. And she did come back over. 
But I think a lot of it was, God, this is going to mess this guy up talking to me if I jump. So she, she did come back over. I think she had pity on pity me. Pity on you. <laughs> that poor lady. So it was some time before I went through a crisis intervention training, what we call CIT. And then it was many, many years later towards the end of my career when I was one of the very, very lucky ones in the Highway Patrol to go through the FBI crisis negotiators course. And the ironic part is now when they come out from Quantico to teach a class out here every year or every other year, they call me up and I do a two-hour presentation with them. So it's it's really cool. It's a lot of fun. I think the new negotiators get that firsthand experience of what it's like to talk with suicidal folks. But it was tough. I got to tell you, it's very, very difficult talking to someone who doesn't see tomorrow. You know, what do you say and what do you not say? And, and it's, it's a very difficult conversation. But I wound up having a, a different path, a way of, of doing this. When I would approach someone, I would stay back 10, 15 feet and just give them an open hand or open palm and say, hi, I'm Kevin. Is it OK if I come up and talk with you for a bit? Not I'm Sergeant Kevin Richard Briggs with the Highway Patrol. That doesn't work. Who cares? I'm just Kevin. I want to personalize everything. If they'll allow me to call them by their first name, that's what I'm doing. The more I can personalize this, the better. When they allow me to come up to speak with them, if I can get below them or at eye level, I think that really helps too. You'll see there's what we call the cord, C-H-O-R-D. That's where most folks stand on the other side of that rail. It's like an I-beam. And it's lower than where I'm standing. So I need to get below them because I don't want to be above them speaking down to them. I think that's what I'm doing. So all these little things that I can do to better this relationship I have with this individual, however long it takes, whether it's 20 minutes, whether it's the longest one I had was eight hours. Wow. We know the, the Golden Gate Bridge, it's cold, it's bitter, there's a lot of noise, it can get very foggy, so it is not an ideal environment. So that core, just to get specific, it's hard to tell in photos, but it's about three feet. I mean, how wide is it? couple of feet anyway. A couple of feet. And yeah. do you actually go over the rail when you're trying to talk to people? No. Yeah. No. Because that's we too dangerous. Do that. Right. Yeah. Because after that, it's 220 feet down. There's nothing on the other side of that. Yeah. And that cord parallels the bridge except for around the two towers. So you just crouch down to try and get eye level? Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. And it looks like an I-beam that's on the other side and that's where the workers are at and they have a little cart that they can go along there. So that's really what it what it's like. And I found that as much as I can mimic what is going on with them as far as dress-wise. So if they're not wearing a jacket, I'm not wearing a jacket. I'm going to be as cold as they are. And it's nasty. It's cold out there. We're both <laughs> suffering. But I They might not they have thought feel. they needed a jacket. That, right. A lot of people don't. They think, oh, it's summertime in San Francisco. It's going to be beautiful. And they come out there, and it's June, July, and August. and can be miserably cold in the, with the fog and all. The way you captured how you, you felt like you were going to say the wrong thing, I think that's so common. I think that's why people are so afraid of critically depressed people or suicidal people is not because that they don't have compassion, but because it feels like such a responsibility that you right. could do more damage than good. I just think that if you are there, you could say things that are better or worse, but if you're there, if you're present, there's nothing you can do to make the situation worse, really, because the person was already debating killing themselves before you got there. So I think it's like the Good Samaritan law. Right. It's like the willingness to show up counts for something. I think most of the time you really can't hurt because there's no lower that it can go. 
I think there's no lower for them to go, but I think what we say and how we say it and how our body is to them can really make a difference also. Yeah. So I have these things that, that I remember and that I tell folks when I'm teaching this is things that we don't want to say. And here's four of them. You should calm down. I understand things will get better. I try to stay clear of those. I want to explain why to folks. Here's why. I just don't want to come at you and say, don't say this, but here's why. You should. You know what you should have done? You try to stay clear of that. Have you tried this? Would be a much better way of saying that. And then calm down. You know, has anybody in the history of ever telling one, someone <laughs> to calm down ever calm down? It's just no. They get all riled up. It makes it worse. And I understand. Like you said, you were, you've been suicidal. I have not. I don't understand what it's like to be suicidal. And I think that's a slap in the face to folks. I understand exactly where you're coming from and what you're going through today. Ah, that's a tough one. I stay clear of that. I can use it as part of a summary and an active listening skill. So if I understand you correctly, these are the things that have been going on because I want them to talk. The more they're talking, the better. They're venting. They're getting things out. Time's going by. I think that's great. High emotions equal low rational thought. Unless sometimes these folks are so at ease with what they're doing, they're ready to go. So they're just putting in a few more minutes, so to speak, seeing, all right, this is it. Let me just sit for a few minutes and think before I go. And they're very, very calm. And that makes it so much more difficult. But just to let them know that someone is there for them. I'm not leaving. I'll turn my cell phone off, my radio off. My full attention is dedicated to you. And I think if we could do that long before someone gets up to that bridge, that would be so beneficial. It really applies to all of life. It's like since I share so much about my emotions, I get a lot of you shoulds. You know, a lot of people when I'm saying, hey, like, I am just coming out of a real whirlwind, a real low point in my life. Everybody wants to throw in their two cents. And for me, it's like, I'm not saying this for your solution to my problem. I'm saying this because there might be one or two other people who feel the way I feel. And I want them to know that they're not alone. Because most people can imagine a few things they could do to help out the situation. Every time... I'm at rock bottom. A lot of things have slipped before that. My rituals are gone. I don't have a consistent life. It's like very unstable. I'm not exercising. I'm not taking care of myself. For somebody to go, well, have you tried this diet? It's like, I'm not interested at this point. Yes. If I ask, hey, does anybody know any diets that are good for depression? Then sure. But if you're not asked to just listen just sit with it. I love the the not saying I understand too, because often it just naturally wants to come out. Oh, I understand because it feels empathetic. But really, if you don't to say, I mean, I've always said like, I can only imagine or some, something Perfect. along those lines. I can, o- I can only imagine how that feels. Yeah. And a big one is, I think, to validate people. You know what? That sounds really tough. Wow, that must be hard. I think that carries a ton of weight with folks is to simply acknowledge what they've been through. Wow, man, that's that must be really, really difficult to go through. I've seen it. And they say, you know what? You get it. Thank you for being here. To normalize their situation. If someone is not on the bridge and I'm talking to them somewhere else and they want to tell me their story and they want to vent, 
perfect. I'm not going to do anything, but what we throw out are called minimal encouragers. Just, wow, really? Man, that's, wow. But just to be there and listen to them and say, you know what? Someone who has been through all of that, they may be thinking about suicide. Have you been thinking about killing yourself? To normalize their situation, validate what they're going through, I think is an integral part of having that conversation with someone. Yeah, I think somebody commits suicide every 80 seconds. Is that right? There's there's a lot we're losing. I, I tell folks we're losing over 40,000 people a year to traffic accidents on the road. And we hear about that all the time. We're losing over 47,000 people a year to suicide. We're losing more to suicide than we are to auto accidents. But we hear a hell of a lot more about auto accidents. Yeah, so it really is more normal than it feels like. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, too, is, is how much it hijacks. Like, for me, it's always such a surprise. A lot of the times it's snuck up on me where it's been getting worse and worse over a long period of time, but you're unable to kind of see it happening. So this time around, I was down in L.A. I was interviewing a big guest, you know, big opportunity for the podcast. Mm-hmm. Normally, that's one of my most excited moments is going on the trip, doing the mission, getting this, the interview and I was not excited for it at all. I started to have, I wouldn't call it like active suicidal thoughts, but it was like those passive ones of like, I just don't want to be here. I want to, wow. I want to break from it all. That was, this has probably been leading up to this from six months ago or longer. I want to say this has been a really hard year because 2019 really was, I was just in the washing machine of life, you know? Yeah. It wasn't until like it got to that moment where I go, oh, things are really bad. Like things are really way, this is not go to the gym and pray for the best. This is go check in and make sure you're okay. Yeah. Thing is that you recognize that. Well, it's not my first rodeo at this point. There you go. But many people don't and think, you know what? I cannot continue on. So I think by recognizing that and knowing I need to get some help. There's no shame in it. I thought when I talked about what had been going on with me for quite some time that I may lose my job, I would lose friends, people make fun of me, all these different things. None of that happened. I get to go out and talk to people now, 30, 40, sometimes 50 times a year to audiences. If I can relate my story and exactly what you're talking about, how it goes down that level of destruction, what can we do? If we recognize that, boom, like you said, you went to the hospital. How do you make, how did you make sense of the first person that you lost? I didn't. I still don't. There's these, these stages of grief, this denial, the anger, the bargaining, the depression, and then the acceptance. I'm still bargaining with it. What could I have done better? It's very, very tough. I had a, a man probably in his 30s. He was over the rail. I was talking to him for a while. And maybe 40 minutes or so, and he turned around and he shook my hand. And he shook my hand three times. And he wasn't under the influence of anything. He wouldn't tell me much about what was going on with him. But he would answer my questions. I didn't get his name. But we would just chat and have this really polite and and nice chat as he was over the rail. And finally, he turned around and he shook my hand. And he said, Kevin, I have to go. My grandmother's down there. His grandmother had passed away some time. And he jumped. And it just broke my heart. I just, oh, this this poor guy, he's suffering so much. So what I have taught and what I've learned and what I've taught as a so-called negotiator, anybody that's in this type of business is 
at that time, if I lose someone, I'm now out of the case. I'm now a witness. Somebody else handles it because what happens is on the bridge, when an individual jumps, the Coast Guard comes and picks the body up and takes them back to the Coast Guard station. And the highway patrol, we are responsible until the coroner gets there and takes over the care of the body. Well, to have me go down there, the guy that was talking to him, and see that body down there, just really cements it in my head to me that I blew it. But we know it's once they're up there, it's very, very difficult to talk to those folks. Most of them do come back over, but we do lose some. But by taking that part of the picture out, so people understand better of what we do, uh, they think cops. I just that's another day, and you know you'll you won't even think about it tomorrow, and it's gone, and and you'll have a cup of coffee and a donut, and everything's fine. No, it sticks with me. This was years ago, and it's still I replay it in my mind. It's very very difficult, but we think about those that we have helped. I tell officers if it really bothers you and it starts affecting your way of life, then we need to get some help, and there is help out there, and there are therapies. And I went through eye movement desensitization, EMDR, EMDR. And that helped for some things that have happened way in my past a long, long time ago. Before you were a highway patrol? Yes. Oh, good. But I had to open my mind to it. I was this type A conservative cop. Nope, I can handle it. Whatever you see, whether it's babies killed in the crash or whatever it is, I need to handle it, suck it up. You can go to a bar that night and you come back the next day and do the same thing all over and over and over again. But it does affect, of course, we're just human beings. So it does affect us. But by allowing myself to be open-minded, and go into this therapy and just say, you know what? I'm going to let it take its course and see what happens. And it really, really helped. It did. So I tell officers, I don't care how strong you are, how big you are, whatever else. This stuff, what we see is brutal. I was asked to go out to Florida one time and speak with a bunch of special forces. They were Green Berets, Army Rangers, Navy SEALs at a war college for E6s and above. And I thought to myself, what can I tell these folks? These guys have been on for some years. They're all seasoned veterans. I, I don't really know what I can tell them, except my typical story of, of how I dealt with this and what they see. But when I got out there, I was talking to the commander of the unit, and he said, Kevin, he goes, these guys see stuff. Oh, yeah, they've, they've seen stuff, but it's a brief time. As a peace officer, you may see stuff daily, and that builds up over many, many years. You just tell them from the heart what has happened to you and the things that have happened, and you're going to really set a good example for them. And I was actually, a few years later, on September 11th this year, the gentleman that brought me out actually promoted and was the enlisted commander for Air Force One for the crew. So he brought me out to Andrews Air Force Base, and I spoke to the crew of Air Force One. How important it is because there's a little bit of stress there in keeping those planes ready. Now, you know, they got to be ready. So these are the things when we're talking to people in these high stress positions that they think, if I can't do this, they're going to take away my clearance. Well, no. Like I'm talking to law enforcement and other folks is if they think if I can't do this job and, and I tell them I'm suffering, they're going to take away my gun, my badge and whatever else. They may take it away briefly. Yes. But that's so you can concentrate and focus more on you. That's what this is about. So that's anybody that we're talking about. If you need to take a leave of absence from work, it's so you can concentrate more on you and what's going on. And when you're better, then you come back. We need to take time for ourselves. When you did have the realization that you can't save everyone, what made you want to keep coming back? It's the look in someone's face when they come back over that rail. And I want them, and this is how I, when I teach to law enforcement, I want folks to come back on their own. 
We all have seen videos on YouTube and such, the heroic gestures of an officer or a fireman or somebody rushing up and grabbing someone and pulling them back over the rail. That's great. Fantastic. Glad it worked. But I think for an individual, it takes a hell of a lot of courage to go over the rail to begin with. I think it takes even more courage to come back over that rail and face everything of what put you over that rail in the first place. So to have the courage to do that starts it off on a very, very good note. They said, you know what? It took a hell of a lot for me to come back over that rail. I can make it through this day and I can make it through tomorrow too. I'd love to know whether people do better in the long run if they decide to come back on their own versus if they're yanked up. That would be an interesting study. That would be. And I would say, I would say, I I think they would be because it takes a hell of a lot of courage to come back over that rail. It really does. I remember my bridge story. Starts with me being an atheist for four years after I got clean and sober. I had been without a higher power. And I saw a bunch of my friends and peers who had a higher power just seemed to be doing slightly better than me. I wanted what they had. And so I texted a bunch of the the guys in my life and I said, hey, I'm going to pray to something today. I got down on a knee and I prayed to something. And that night my world collapsed. I literally prayed in that morning. And I said, I've been trying to control the show. I'm ready for whatever's supposed to happen to happen. I don't think I was because what happened is my long-term partner at that time left me. It was over that night. I found myself just driving and crying and eventually I ended up at the Golden Gate Bridge. It was like a moth to a flame. I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to go to the bridge. It was just, I was just driving and crying and I ended up in that south side parking lot on the Mm -hmm. city side. I was devastated. I mean, I was, it was like the way I can capture this particular heartbreak is I was a guy and I had written this future for myself. I had written this future where we're going to get married and have kids and grow old together. Because that was all over, all of a sudden I was a man without a future. I don't know what I had, a five-year-old son at this time, but that just, you don't think about that kind of stuff in the moment. You just think about the pain and It was late, so I walked up to the gate, and it was closed, right? It's closed, I think the sign says sunset to sunrise. I took kind of a deep breath, and I was like, okay, you know, I can't do it. All of a sudden, the gate creeks open, and there's a bicyclist or something. (laughs) Bicyclist, they're allowed 24 hours a day. There's a bicyclist coming, Uh, the fucking gate opens, and I literally, like, it was like, I felt so, in one second, I was so fucking angry. I literally screamed at at the sky and I said, fuck you, I'm not doing it. You know? <laughs> it was an invitation. <laughs> That's how I felt. Yeah, it's like. Oh, my God. It, it just felt like, well, if you want to, here you go. And But I made that decision. I said, fuck you, I'm not doing it. I ended up keeping and developing a relationship with a higher power that I still love to this day. It's something that. That helps me, and I think it's a super individual choice. But that was my little, I never made it to the bridge. I didn't cross that that threshold. There's so many ways to look at that. It was a test for you to take that extra few steps. It was an invite. There were so many ways to look at that. That's a hell of a story right there. Wow. Fucking wow, bicyclist, that's, that's man. amazing. I've never heard that before, <laughs> something like that. And I hear a lot of stories. Wow. What is the, just to get some idea of the of the situation, how many people end up over the rail in a year? Quite a few. I believe in 2018, there were 31 confirmed suicides and 187 that were taken off for mental health evaluation. Okay. So 187 that were close enough that they got. Yes. Either in the parking lots, on the sidewalk or over the rail, something around there. And then 31 confirmed. 
But I will tell you that there's some that we don't get. If someone jumps and we lose them in the fog, or they sink, hit by ships, whatever that may be, if there's not a body, then the Marin County Coroner does not take a number. So there's more. It may say 31, but I know there's more. It's pretty easy to get around that gate. And yeah. I hate to say that, but you could step right out in the road and go right around that little gate. So if you went in the middle of the night and they didn't get to you for whatever reason, it's totally foggy out and, and they didn't get to you. Things yeah. happen. And these thoughts happen 24-7. So you can go in the morning or yeah. or whatever. Yeah. When somebody ends up coming back over and getting in the patrol car with you, they go to a mental hospital for a 5150 or what? Is it? Right. Yeah. Right. And the thing that I tell folks when when they're over the rail, if they're over the rail, is I tell them, when you come back over, I have to place you in handcuffs. And that's only because it's all policy. And this is a big deal I want to explain to folks because people think if they're over that rail, if they come back, now they're going to jail. Any city, big time jail is not going to be a, a phenomenal place. We call it 850 Bryant. That's where it's located. But it's a big city jail and it, they're not fun places. I've never you been know. to 850 You don't Bryant. want to do it. No. I went to the Blue Roof Inn here in There Marin. you go. You always want to come be on the north side. The north tower is a separation point between going to San Francisco jail and Marin County jail. So quite different. But I tell folks, when you come back over, not if, but when you come back over, I have to place you in handcuffs. That's only because there's our policy. And that helps. I teach this to folks because they think they're in trouble now. The last thing they need is to go to jail and then go to some what we call psych ward, so to speak. They think they're going to compound everything. I'm already over here for all these different reasons. Now I'm going to go to jail and all that. No, most of these folks have not done anything wrong. They're just suffering. So when they come back over, we take them to either San Francisco General Hospital, they have a psych ward, or to Marin General, to a psych ward there, where they are placed on a hold, can be up to three days, the doctors can make it more, or they can make it less. I hope that starts the process for them of getting better. Yeah, 5150 is a, generally a three-day hold, if, but if you're feeling, if you're looking much better before then, it's not always three days, and then if you're not well after three days, they can extend it, but that means you're really, really not well after three days, you know. Right. You're, you're in a psychosis or something. Right, and it's, they're, they're there to help. Yeah. So I've heard stories of folks going there and not talking to anybody. They'll keep you there. If you're not talking, they're going to keep you there. <laughs> you know, they want you around. So talk to them. Tell them what's going on with you. It is. It's a crappy situation. Nobody wants to go to the hospital, but they are there to help. And those folks work long hours. They put in a lot to be there to, to help people. So allow them to do their job. Take what they say. It's one of the misconceptions, too. It's like, oh, it's illegal. You're going to get arrested. And yeah. it's like where people are like, it's a sin. Well, the church made it a sin way after the fact. Way after the fact. I believe if I'm remembering right, it was because people were committing suicide as like trying to become a martyr. They said, we got to stop people thinking this is a good right. thing. So they made it a sin. But for me, this is just my own personal two cents. For me, I don't see a, a moral reason against suicide. I just see the potential to experience something that you either feel so far from or that you haven't experienced again because I have felt like I was done for. And there was reasons to feel like I had ruined my life. I was a ex-meth head with a record. I was in a really ugly custody case as an ex-meth head where it just seemed like I was not going to get custody of my son. I had gotten in a violent altercation high on meth that could have landed me in prison for a long, long time. So I have had feelings where this is it. It's over. When you choose to live, I don't think it's the morally 
better than choosing to not, but I think you are giving something a chance. I can't say just like you said that things are going to get better, but what I can say is that you're giving it a chance. You're giving it a chance and you have an opportunity for it. Yeah. yeah. And I can't tell them, I won't say, you know, things are going to get better. Let's give it a shot. I'm here for you today. Somebody's going to be there to, for, for you tomorrow. I don't know. But I tell you, I'm here today and we would have never met. And I'm going to take as long as time is needed. Whatever it is, as far as religion, I typically don't discuss it. But if they ask me about it and it does come up, someone will ask me, uh, am I going to go to hell if I jump? I'll tell them, you know what? I can just give you my opinion. If you've been a good person because you are suffering so greatly now that you can't see tomorrow, if you jumped, and I pray that you don't, I I don't see how you could go to hell. I don't see how that could happen. No, you're suffering right now. Some people may say you're sick or you're ill, but you're suffering. You're going through a tremendous amount where you can't see tomorrow. I can't imagine that not seeing tomorrow. But if you're that low, I think any of us would be thinking, if I got to that point where I don't think I can make it till tomorrow. I don't see why God will not accept me. Yeah. I just got on a new medication. I was on this mood stabilizer called Lexapro, which is great. Mm -hmm. Loved it. Still am on it. Just recently, I said, I need to try something else. And I'm on Lexapro. Even the highs I felt by getting clean and sober, that was a real good feeling. Getting my first accurate diagnosis. That was a great feeling to go, I'm, I'm not crazy. Something is actually going on. And then for me to do the, the mess that is to find the first medication, which worked, just felt heroic. But this new medication, I really feel wonderfully surprised. Wow. I feel like, oh, I don't think I've ever had the kind of dragnet ever this light before. I, I'm eight years clean and sober. It's been a, a long road of trying to heal and get help. And so you just don't know how things can drastically change. In a month period, going from feeling like, I don't want to be here to feeling like, God, I can't wait for 2020. <clears throat> Current Sam here. Yes, I was excited for 2020. Little did I know the world was about to explode and I was also about to explode. But what I can tell you now is I am almost 10 years clean and sober. I am very excited for 2022 and I am in a much better place than I was even earlier this year. So time is a funny thing. Sometimes you think you're through the thick of it, and you're not, but carry on. That's fantastic. There's some folks out there that I'm not going to take a medication. I'm not crazy. Nobody's saying you're crazy. But if your brain and the synapses aren't firing right, maybe there's something out there that can help that fire better. That's all we're looking at. Maybe you looking at it as a deficiency in something that the pill can make up for. That's all it is. You know, there's no shame in it. There's really not. It's about making you better so you can have a quality of life. What was your mental health journey like? When did you decide to start seeing a professional and when did you start considering, I think I want to try medical treatment? I found out was I can go to work and be great. Everything's fine. Laughing, have a good time or sorrow when something would happen. Everything was fine. But when I went home and I didn't have to do something because I'm big into in my work ethic. That's huge with so many people is we have to go out and work. That's our purpose. But when I was home, I found that I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to go see my boys, walk the dog, even wash clothes. It was so difficult for me to do anything but sit on a couch and watch TV. I suffered a long time until I finally got, what is going on? I told my doctor about this. He said, you know what? You're suffering from depression. 
It catch you off guard. So he knows my history. I've had the cancer. I've had head injuries. I have three stents in my heart. A lot of stuff, like a lot of people have. So uh, there's a lot of stuff there. But I go, Jesus, now depression on top of everything else? <laughs> Come on, how much can one person take? But they say, you know what? That's when I really had to open up and say, all right, I'm going to try some therapy. I will try the drugs. They recommended meditation. I think I can't do that. I'm always drinking coffee all day, always up. <laughs> but I had to slow down and I did some research. So TM, Transcendental Meditation, it really works. I don't put the time into it like I should now. It's really, really something. To give you an example, I did it down in Sausalito. Took a class and had to go every week and it was pretty lengthy. I learned a hell of a lot. But as law enforcement, you hear about when we go into restaurants, we don't put our back to the door and we're always sitting in the back and all these things, officer safety wise. We don't close our eyes by people. We just don't. It's, you're always on the lookout. I will tell you, as law enforcement, the best meditations I have had are down there in Sausalito with eight to ten people who I have no clue who they are. I don't know their first names. I don't know anything about them. But we're closing our eyes for 30 minutes. Some of the happiest times I've had, as far as meditation-wise, are right there with all these strangers who I closed my eyes in front of for half an hour. I had to open my mind up and really come clean with things. But it does work. You have to get an opportunity. I tried yoga. It wasn't for me. You know, we have to see what works for us. <laughs> yeah. What did you find out in your own formula of what, of what works for you? What is important for you to make sure that you're doing to keep your own mental health healthy? I need to get out of the house. When I retired from the highway patrol, I can stay inside all day. I can work from inside and all that. But boy, you get locked up and I need to get out. So I started working at the local schools in Novato where I'm from, just south of Petaluma there, was one thing. I was asked to come and kind of mentor the kids. So I go to, to 11 different schools a couple days a week when I'm not traveling. That gets me out of the house. What can I do to get me out of the house? Whether that's going to the gym. Sometimes it's tough. You know, I don't feel like it. I just want to hang out today. What do we do for stress relief? And I've always had big dogs. Now I have, because I'm gone a lot, I have a little bitty chihuahua. And Same. she's a kick. She's a kick. <laughs> they're, they're a hoot. They really are. So I can't have this little chihuahua sitting in this house all day. I'm going to get her out walking just to get that foot out the door. can help so many people because they don't want to leave the house. I've seen it with so many people. They just get locked in. And whether they're just locked in a room or lock themselves in a room and they don't even watch TV, they just sit there miserably. Just boy, It takes a lot of courage, too, sometimes just to get out of that house. Maybe go shopping get out. If you can have a friend that you can go have coffee with, oh, that's so huge. Somebody that'll take the time. It's not even to say, this is everything that's going on with me and to bitch at him or whatever else, but just to go out and say, look at this blue sky. There's a bird right there. And to laugh at a little puppy that's in the area, something like that. To be able to get out of the house is really huge. Yeah. Some days I think it, it starts with a shower and brushing her teeth. Like that can feel like <laughs> absolutely absolutely Sometimes that's, that's a big a deal it is yeah. it is those of us who suffer that is it really is that's step one now let's try to get out and do something and as a father what did you want your kids to know about mental health and and depression i think it's probably maybe maybe not i don't know what it's like now in school but when i went to school it was definitely underrepresented people weren't talking about suicide kids should be taught how to talk to someone who's depressed or how to be there for their friend who's depressed. Not just tell an adult, but just how to just say, oh man, I hear you. Can we can we talk to somebody about this? I'll go with you. As a father, were you raising your kids while you were highway patrol? Is yes. That, so the timeline is, is there. So yes. what did you want your kids to know? How tough it is. It's tough growing up now because of social media and all the different things out there. It's way different. I was born in 62. 
So, of course, I didn't have a cell phone until I was 27 years old or something. It's way different growing up now. The demands on kids are much more because there's so many more people. So as a parent, I pushed my kids too far and say, you know, the grades are so important. The grades have got to get into a good college. No, my oldest, who is now 19, was, was suicidal for a time and was actually cutting on himself, that non-suicidal self-injury. And I didn't know any of this. And here I am traveling the world, Australia, New Zealand, Germany, all these places talking about mental health and how to talk to someone who's suicidal. And here it is happening at home. So I missed a lot. But I think many of us in law enforcement and other careers also, first responders and such, we give, 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 but we don't see what's going on with us and we fail to see what's going on with home. So big eye opener. My boy's doing much, much better. I was able to take him and get him some help and realize, boy, I was really pushing him and not talking, not saying the correct things because I was divorced and he was the oldest kid out of two boys. He was 14 at the time. And I would tell him, dad's gone. I'm gone. You got to handle everything in this house. It's all on you, man. If it catches fire, if there's a flood, whatever else. I was dumping so much stuff on this kid. It was way too much. He had had enough. I was very, very lucky to still, or I'm very lucky to still have him around. And he's, he loves his soccer and he's been traveling all over on different teams. And he actually is now attending the UC Davis in division one soccer. And he's on the team. Wow. It's, it's a phenomenal turnaround, but I always check on him too. And he's home right now. He's at the Novato house. I hang out with him and I chat with him and let him know that I'm there. You don't know when, when you could lose someone. I was touring Montana at the end of September and then into October. I did eight days there. I did three talks a day, two to schools and then a community event at night. I spoke to a lot of kids. I was simply amazed at the number of young women in high schools who were cutting themselves. Montana is a tough state because it can be so rural that they're so spread out. The help isn't there. The families there are you, you buck up and you handle it and you know they don't have a lot of outlets. So I have some different things that I show them and I talk about when I talk about my own boy, but a crisis safety plan and how to make one and what that's about. But I would hope they would do it with a mental health professional. But I have my own just to show them what it's like. I was amazed at how many people came up and wanted to take a picture of that to show the different things that can help you before you get into a crisis. Kids are getting better. They want to talk about it. Yeah. I'm on a speakers bureau with Active Minds. It's for colleges. I'm amazed. When I go to a college, how many people show up? And I'm telling them not to hear Kevin Briggs. I'm not into that. It's because they care about one another. I'm just amazed at that. I'm thinking back when I was in school. For one, I didn't want to listen to a cop. And two, I'm not going to, I don't want to hear about suicide. Who wants to hear about this stuff? It's the, the maturity level is much, much greater now, I think. It is a lot easier to talk about it. It's tough. It's a tough topic. It's a tough situation. But at least the stigma is getting reduced. Yeah. So it's getting much, much better. We're still losing a lot of people, but I think it's getting better. I think it's getting better, too. And it really depends on on what you tune into. You know, this project came out of the disparity between people's actual lives and their social media lives. And it was just in terms of what I had curated online, my friend group in this. I would see friends who I knew were in unhappy relationships posting about how happy their relationship was. Or I knew friends that were unhappy at their jobs who were posting about how much they love their jobs. And the funny thing is, is even if you know it's not true, you still take that in. Now, one of my things is I unfollow liars, whether I love you or not. If I know what you're posting is bullshit, if I know for a fact, 
I can't afford to have you poisoning my mind with that because right. even though you don't intend to, it's poison. It's poison for people because everybody feels alone in this. If you're in an unhappy relationship, how many people are on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter saying, hey, me and my spouse just went to marriage counseling and we're having a really tough time as a couple, but we're both pretty hopeful. No one, no one's sharing that. But that could be right. a world that we could live in right. one day. If you're tuned into the right stuff, there's more and more people getting vulnerable, being real and risking uh, being judged by people who don't understand. But it's really fantastic. I had an intern this summer who joined one of the crisis lines. I think it was for sexual assault survivors. Okay. He came to interview. I said, do you have depression? He said, no. I said, do you have anxiety? No. Why are you here? Why are you working for this company? You know, Why do you want to work for me? And he said, I just want to help people. And he had taken the training to be a crisis line counselor because one of his friends had been a, a victim of sexual assault, now a survivor of sexual assault. He just wanted to help. And I wasn't thinking about that in college. I was just thinking about getting high and partying. So he was affected. He was affected. And I will tell you, yeah. piggybacking on what you say there, in my travels and in speaking with folks now, almost every single person that I meet who is involved in a crisis line, in whatever it is to help folks, they've been affected by a suicide. I found only one person in my past six years of traveling that wasn't. It was an elderly lady that was on a walk that volunteered with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. She came out and she goes, no, I don't know anybody. She goes, I just... I believe in this and I want to help. One person out of six years and thousands and thousands and thousands of people, whatever it is, like you're saying, whatever it was, they were affected by it. And now they don't want to see their friend or somebody else have to go through that. So they want to help. And yeah. it's very admirable. I have a couple just aching questions yeah. about your work on the bridge. How many people are facing the bay side, the east side of the bridge, as opposed to the, the ocean side, the west side of the bridge? So most of the folks, almost all the folks who come and attempt or do jump are facing the bay towards Alcatraz. Same. Me and too. That's because pedestrians, generally speaking, pedestrians are not allowed on the other side. Oh, okay. That yeah, makes sense. That's the big part of this. Yeah. We have had some that were driving southbound, stop the middle of the bridge, get out and, and jump over the rail that faces towards Hawaii. But 99% of the time, it's because pedestrians are only allowed on the east side of the bridge, which is facing towards the city. Oh, I didn't even think about yeah. that. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. I guess I didn't try the other side. <laughs> <laughs> and what are the top five reasons people give when they're at the bridge when you say, hey, what's going on? So, Is there a theme? Some of the commonalities I've seen is if they were on a prescription medicine, medication for a mental illness, they stopped it a month prior. That's a big one. I can tell you, folks, don't stop that medication. It maybe need to be changed. Maybe you don't like what's going on inside of you, the after effects and the different things that can happen. But uh, see your doctor. Don't just stop. That's a big one. And most suffer from depression, whether diagnosed or not, I see. And they think they're a burden to their families. Mm -hmm. But when I ask them about it, have you talked to your family about this? No. But that's how I feel. I feel like I'm a burden to everybody and it's simply not worthy of of going on any longer. So those are some of the, the big ones. What about heartbreak? That's a big one. Relationships and money. Money. Oh, yeah. wow. But generally, relationships are bigger. I would say relationships, money, and something to do with the law. 
Yeah, I've checked all those boxes except for the the money, you know. But maybe it's just because I've I've been poor for. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've seen it to where we had a guy come up who was a, a manager of a mutual fund, millions and millions of dollars, and he made some bad calls and he lost a lot of money for people. So that also. Oh yeah, yeah. That I, also. I know some people that have lost fortunes. Yeah, yeah. But generally, a lot of it is relationships. Yeah, no, is. nothing has made me quite as suicidal as good old-fashioned heartbreak. That's the tough one. And yeah. going off my meds. Here's just a thing about even depression, even not with suicide, is once or twice a year I get this great idea that I'd love to be unmedicated. When I don't run it by my psychiatrist, it's often because I've heard of some new fad diet or probiotics or something great new thing. Right. That is one of the commitments I made to myself in 2009 in 2019 I've been medicated all year I didn't go off you know which is amazing now that I'm on a new medication I would love to continue that streak of just staying medicated for a while I would love if I can't even imagine stringing together a couple years without some kind of crisis hello this is current Sam by the way didn't happen that way totally had a crisis and I'm still okay that'd be fantastic <laughs> well, look at you you're yeah. smiling you're but I, th I think coherent part, yeah i think part of that it's the there's a commonality when i end up at the lowest i can get when i end up at rock bottom there's generally a couple things that are true one i haven't been exercising taking care of myself two i'm unmedicated every single time i've been suicidal i've been unmedicated there's a big one that's a fact yeah you know and people should hear that they really should yeah they're really glad should. you're saying that yeah there's these these commonalities yeah. yeah. And another one I want to mention is adolescents, teenagers. Generally, they don't see many years into the future. Time and time again, when a teenager has come up to that bridge, they come up, they take a look around a little bit, and they jump. And we don't even get a chance to talk with them. Shortly before I retired, there was a teenager, a young woman, over the rail, and I actually took a picture of her as an officer was talking to her. It was very, very unique because, like I said, most of the time, we don't get a chance. They see five, six, seven years into the future. So whatever is going on with them, whether it's social media, whether they've been embarrassed, poor grades, abused, that's a huge one. The shame involved with either substance abuse or being abused, uh, sexually abused, huge. But like I said, they don't see too many years in the future, so we don't get that opportunity. So that's, I, when I talk to kids, I go, man, just talk to somebody. As adults, we look way in, we're looking for retirement, possibly moving and and. Whatever you want to do, kids, you're just trying to make it through the next couple of years. They don't see it. If we can talk about that and say whatever it is going on, it's going to pass. It's going to pass. Maybe you're embarrassed. Maybe a boyfriend, girlfriend broke up and you dated six months, which is a long time for them. Whatever it is, it's going to pass. You're going to feel better. You will get through this. So that's a big one. We're losing a lot of teenagers. We're losing over 1,100 college students a year. Wow. A lot of stress. A lot of stress. A lot of stress. Yeah, I've noticed the thing about young people, too, as a father, my son's 10. He was showing some signs where I knew he was at least melancholy. My first thing is just like, oh, I don't want him to have depression. He may very well have it. Now, I, I don't know, but there's a desire to, even for me as a, as a parent, there's just like a desire for that not to be the case. This year, recognize my son's having a hard time talking about his feelings. He's having a hard time putting words to it. He doesn't have that skill yet. We've been working on it, but it led to some painful realizations for me to look at when we started to peel back those layers, which is one like, oh man, I haven't modeled for you how to talk about your feelings. I haven't shown you. 
I've just expected you to. And then kind of once you're like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, just go, okay, fine, whatever. That wasn't the way I wanted to be parenting. That was just the pattern we were in. It's like, hey, what's going on? You seem upset. I don't know. I don't know. And then I just get so frustrated. It's like, fine, whatever. Keep your secrets. But this year, we've been finally working on it. But it sucks. It sucks to have a young person because you just feel like, oh, well, you don't know yet, you know? Right. Yeah. That can't be depression. You have nothing to be depressed about. But that's not. And I think, you know, just what you said there, we don't want to hear. We don't want anything happening to our kids. As, as parents, we think whatever bad can happen to them, let it happen to us. So we don't dig. I know I didn't dig into my kids. I think everything okay? Oh, yeah, everything's fine. Okay. And left it at that until it all came to a hit, boy. And then to actually sit down and hear everything's been going on and then the screaming, crying coming from him. It's horrible. It didn't have to get to that level. What am I doing as a parent? I better get my act together. It's tough. When I grew up, you know, we didn't talk. We didn't have any, we didn't talk about feelings like this to anybody. It was tough. But I think it's it's getting better. And you acknowledged it. I mean, that's half the battle right there, acknowledging it. Because we don't want to see our kids suffer and go through some of the things that, that we went through. Yeah. But that's out of our control. It is. Yeah. It is. We can only tell them, you know what, I'm here for you. I am here for you. Anything you want to talk about, don't have to be embarrassed. I will talk to you about it. I'm not going to put blame. I just want to let you know that I'm here for you. Yeah. So I'm somebody who has used a lot of help. I've gotten a lot of help from therapists. I've gotten help from psychiatrists. I've called the crisis hotline. And now I know that there's a crisis text line as right. well. I haven't right. actually needed to text it yet, but... What are, what are other resources that if people are listening to this and they recognize in themselves, oh, wow, I need, what are some other resources sure. that you know? So we do. We have that, the crisis hotline, the 1-800-273-TALK. And now I believe it's it's a year or two in the coming, but it's, I believe it's going to be 988 will be the new one. And that'll be pretty cool. We have the 741-741 crisis text line. And that's really neat because we know, especially with kids, they don't want to talk, but they sure will text the hell out of stuff. So <laughs> I think that's that's great to see that going on. To go on sites um, like the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention or National Alliance for Mental Illness, so AFSP and NAMI, there's a lot of information up there that for support and who to contact. And your counties and your cities will have a lot of information also. You do not have to suffer alone. There is. All you got to do is go on the, on the Internet. Don't just start digging into things and, and follow something. Make sure that it, that it's well established, I would say. Yeah. You've been really generous with your time. Oh, my pleasure. And I, I could just pick your brain for hours and hours. But I like to end this way. And I think I'm going to frame the question a little bit differently. But if you were to not be here anymore, like an untimely death, and either one of your children or one of your, your dear family friends who's a young person was at their lowest, lowest moment, but you had an opportunity to leave a, a message for them that they could play just to know what you know to be true and what you'd want them to know about life and the reality of the situation of living with mental illness or with these really in this moment of suffering. What is a message you would want to, to have on the record? What I'm thinking just right now on the spot would be, you know, things can get tough. They do. Look at, at your heartbeat. It's up and down. Look at life. You're going to have ups and downs, but the downs are going to pass. They may not seem like it, but they will. And it may take a few days. It may take longer, but these things will pass and you're going to have a lot of happy times. So take them all as they come. 
Do what you can for your own self-discovery. Try to help others. Remember that I love you. Just keep carrying on. Be tough through this. Even in the toughest of times, it'll pass. And then make some great friends. And don't be afraid to love people. Thank you so much. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the How to Human podcast. If you are struggling, please let somebody know. Let us know. Let your family know. Let your friends know. There are resources in the show notes that we know about, but there's a ton of people out there who would love to help you. But we need to know that you're struggling. If you'd like to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash howtohuman. You can share this episode with a friend or loved one. And you could write a review in the iTunes store on Apple Podcasts and let the rest of the world know that this show is worth continuing on. Thank you and have a great day.